Welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Ribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. People often say in an off-the-cuff way that something they organised was like a military operation. Well, this week's guest, Harry Lomas, really does know what it's like to run a kitchen as a huge, well-oiled military machine. Harry's strategic skills have been honed by the 34 years he spent with the British Army. His amazing career included a stint with the Royal Household, the position of Master Chef with the Parachute Regiment in Cyprus, and, to round off, being responsible for feeding troops around the world, including Afghanistan. There he was involved in rebuilding the kitchen at Camp Bastion, which had to serve 25,000 troops at each sitting three times a day. The statistics become even more eye-watering with Harry's next role, overseeing the catering for the 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games in London. As you'll hear, the prospect of serving 147,000 people a day never seemed to daunt Harry. That's probably why he's the perfect fit for the title he now holds, Head of Culinary at Wembley Stadium. At which point I'll hand over to the great strategist himself. Only Harry can explain the complexities of cooking different meals for thousands of football fans and making sure they're back in their seats before kickoff. Harry Lomas, thank you so much for sparing the time to be on the podcast. Hugely appreciated. Uh, For people listening, can you just explain where on planet Earth are we, please, Harry? Because it's quite a special place. It is. uh, We're at the National Stadium. This is Wembley Stadium. in London, and it's the uh, home of the FA. Yeah, amazing. Um, I'm staggered. I've been obviously, you know, researching you before I came, and the scale and the variety of some of the stuff you've done over your career uh, literally made my eyes water when I was reading about you know, the universe of a number of people that you can serve in a day. So very much looking forward to going on a bit of a journey around uh, your career and your life in kitchens and hospitality. But we'll start with with Wembley, if you don't mind. Can you just give a sense of, of the scale of the operation here? How many restaurants are here? Who are they aimed at? How does it work? Yeah, it's uh, it's a, an outstanding venue and pretty much the peak of my career um, to be working in Wembley. We've got about a hundred kitchens throughout the whole of the uh, the stadium, um, half a dozen restaurants, and each of the restaurants are uh, quite unique to the uh, the different members, the very members that uh, that we have. Uh, starting off at the the top end, we've got the 120, which offers uh, outstanding fine dining, five course meal, five choice meal, uh, à la carte in um, in about a three hour window, uh, and that caters for about 450. That's quite un- unique in trying to get your meal in in time uh, before they kick the football off. Uh, on time otherwise um, they ain't going to hold the kickoff for me so I've got to get the food out so that's um, quite high end lots of work going to there and we are engaged with both the members uh, and the FA in choosing the menus what go in there so a lot of work goes into that 
the next one down again hospitality plated is three choice three uh, course menu in that's our bobby moore uh, restaurant and that's about 900 to a thousand people we get in there uh, and again the same three hour window to get the thousand people through uh, tables of uh, two up to tables of 10 coming through there lots of corporate hospitality and lots of members in there but a new restaurant that's opened up is our new atrium which is called our number nine were you just trying to make life more difficult? Did you think that all the other restaurants you had weren't enough and you just needed one more? Or uh, what was the motivation for adding well, number nine? Yeah, well, that's really interesting. I've been here about two years and I thought it was easy just feeding football fans. Uh, and then I found out there's different sorts of football fans. And, um, you know, I mean, food is always on the move. People are always looking for something different. They're always looking for innovation. You're only as good as your last meal and everybody's always looking for something different. And the uniqueness of the number nine, which was just a buffet restaurant, is, is still a buffet restaurant, but it's a high-end buffet restaurant. And that's been fully decked out, fully refurbished, um, great furnishings in there. And therefore, we've got the food to match it. And we've gone down a bit of a theme of uh, London markets. So Billingsgate uh, for the fish and uh, the tapas area. Um, we've got the Smithfield for the meat, the roast. Um, we've got uh, Brick Lane uh, for the curries and the Oriental. So the idea is on each match, we try and uh, just switch the food round. Try and put a nod to whoever we're playing against. So whatever the opposing team is that's coming in, uh, we have a, a little bit of uh, food, pass around food, which gives a bit of a nod to whoever the uh, the opposing team. So if, I don't know, Germany coming in, we'd have some little bits going around, German bites going around, just so they're included in the overall uh, food and the experience. Um, look, when people come to Wembley Stadium, they're coming to see what's on in the football field. They're not coming to see me and the, the, the food. What my job is and what I like it to be is I want to be part of it and I want to make the food part of their journey. So it's, it, it, it's great they come in here, they spent all that money on a ticket and what have you, but I'm in the middle before they get there. And my job is to just make them feel that the whole experience comes together. I have uh, the opportunity to go and chat to them when they're dining, find out what they like, what they don't like. Um, look, if I got it right every time, I wouldn't be here. They'd have somebody else here. But uh, it's good to have the, uh, the challenges that it brings with all the preferences and uh, allergens and various things. It, it gives me the opportunity to go and table touch, find out what makes people tick, find out what they want to have. And hence that led us to a little bit of this uh, new number nine restaurant uh, where people do like to graze. You know, I mean, not everybody's into this formal dining, sitting down, plate, being served. There is absolutely a requirement for that, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and that's always going to be a couple of thousand for us uh, on a football match. Uh, but more and more is uh, of the grazing buffy. Um, from the number nine, there's a, 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 another restaurant opened up, which is the Centre Circle. And uh, as it is, it's on the other side of the stadium, uh, right on the halfway line. So the seating for the, uh, uh, the members are right on the halfway line. They can see the Royal Box. They can see the footballers coming out the tunnel. You know, I mean, all whatever happens on the football pitch, they get all excited about it. Uh, but the offering is a street food. Um, 
Very simply, it's opened a couple of hours before the start. Uh, members in there, it's about 500 members in there, and it gives them the opportunity to uh, have some of the street food, whether it's a, uh, a pulled pork bap, whether it's a kebab, whether it's fish and chips, whether it's um, uh, curry and rice, um, spaghetti bolognese, um, what do we have? The uh, Yorkshire pudding wraps, those sort of things, all little bits. Uh, and they come round two or three times and uh, drinks part and parcel of the package. Luckily, uh, I've, I've had lunch or I'd be starving, Harry. But the, yeah. the, uh, all of these are, are these just match days that these are open, all of these restaurants? So these are match days only. Yeah. Uh, whilst uh, downtime from match days, the, um, it's a, a venue for higher Wembley. So we have uh, hospitality um, throughout um, some of the areas when okay. there's no match on. Yeah. So if you have a big kind of gig or something going on here, do, is there are all of the restaurants, they're all open on match day. Are they all open any other time or would that be unlikely, basically? That would be very, very unlikely. If the Spice Girls come and fill it up, you don't necessarily open every single... Uh... No. So when, when we say a bowl event, so that could be... Um, so that's the football. Yeah. I thought I knew football. Then there's uh, there's EFL, there's the FA, then there's the RFL, which is rugby. Then there's the NFL, which is American football. You know, everybody's going to, you know, I mean, get a turn in here. Um, and of course, when you think it's all finished, then they bring in the Spicy Girls and all the rest of them. They all come <laughs> in and then there's other Eagles and uh, Bieber and everybody else. They, they're all coming. So when they're on, when there's yeah. a bowl event on, everything's open. Right. Okay. Wow. And, and actual football games, is it nine a year? Is that right? Is that or? Wow. <laughs> now, that's a very interesting statement because when they asked me to come and do this job, I think they said to me, we only have about nine matches a year. Yeah. What they meant to tell me is there's nine main matches. Right. But I think we do about 25. Okay. You know what I mean? It's, uh, and last year, I think we did 125. It seemed to be open every other day, you know what I mean? Uh, but um, as long as the grass is growing out there, they're playing football. Was that it. the year that Tottenham were borrowing it? Or? That was the yeah. So we had Tottenham Hotspurs were here for the first part of the year, and then everything else came in the second half of the year, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so real range then from sort of top-end fine dining down yeah. to casual. And this is, this is members only, basically. You can't just rock up and come in and eat Harry's lunch. Um, there is uh, an opportunity for um, some uh, on the day when you come in. Um, so we do have some of the restaurants where we allow people in and they can pay on the day, which is a similar offering. Uh, but predominantly, it's um, it's members only. Of course, we've got the new Three Lions pub and the Lioness uh, pub. I think they're the biggest pubs in Europe. Um, so they tell me, and uh, that offers, you know, I mean, burgers, fish and chips, pizzas, and what have you, pub grub. Um, to come in there. So that's a walk-in offer um, that you can come into as well. Um, and of course, that's that's all on the, the corporate membership side. But, you know, I mean, three quarters of the stadium are general public, general yes. admission. Are you, are you responsible for food for that yeah, as well? Yeah, and the food is, um, so we've got about 20,000 plated meals going out round and about. Um, then the rest of it, uh, it's a 90,000 stadium and the rest are on um, uh, levels one and level five. And, uh, you know, I mean, over half the stadium is on level five, 45,000 are on level five. And that it offers uh, burgers, uh, hot dogs, fish and chips, uh, all that sort of uh, grab uh, and go. And none of that's outsourced. That all comes under... That all comes Harry under Lewis. here, comes all, 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 all through here. And again, um, again... Part of my remit and why I like the job is uh, I want to make an impact on somebody's 
um, journey through Wembley, whether it is the fish and chips, whether it's the uh, bagel or whether it's the fine dining in the 120, you know, I mean, somewhere along the line, we're involved in that food and we want to make sure it's the best we can do. I'm exhausted just listening so to the thought, the thought of trying I'm to feed it's that Friday many afternoon, people of course I'm knackered. <laughs> in three hours. Uh, I was saying before we started that, you know, I've got a restaurant where we try and serve 200 people on a Saturday night and maybe 100 people in the bar and my team think it's mental. So I'm going to play this back to them and say, there you go, imagine having 90,000 people to serve. Well, the, uh, I think an important part, I'd like to say, you know, I mean, I, I don't do this on my own and I'm only really? as good as my team and I've got an outstanding team. Uh, I've got uh, four head chefs, um, a good uh, admin support, good back of house support, um, and that really um, uh, is the the nucleus of how it all comes together. On on the day, I've got up to two hundred and fifty chefs and kitchen assistants round the whole of the stadium. So obviously, about four days out, I start to prep. An extra ten guys in, an extra forty guys in the next day, an extra fifty guys in on the next day, and on on the game day we got about two hundred and fifty in and around. So I was chatting to my brother a couple of days ago, who's also working in catering, and he's been trying to recruit one chef for about the last two months, of which I think about eighty percent of the people who say they're going to come in for a trial shift don't rock up. And he was kind of like, "How do you find two hundred and fifty people to turn up for? Because these aren't presumably." They don't all work directly for you. Is this through agencies? Or? Uh, no, there's a, a, a combination of uh, variable staff that work for us, um, for uh, our team, Delaware North, throughout London and up and down the country. And then um, over half uh, come from agencies. But we have a very good liaison with our agencies. And uh, we're known as a sort of a no-nonsense uh, approach. You know, I mean, if you come in here, they, they know we're here. They know what is required. And um, I think they enjoy it when they come. And the idea, if you make work fun, you know, I mean, uh, I think they'll come. They don't come to watch the football match, but they come part of the experience. And it's a real buzz when there's a match on here. You know, I mean, everybody's behind it. Um, we've got to make it happen. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, at the end of a game, 50% of the stadium are not going to be happy because somebody's won or lost or whatever the case may be. So uh, I like to think that we've helped them through their journey with the food. Yeah. If they're going home talking about the food and it's good about the food, I'm delighted. Makes sense. So 250 people on a match day. Um, you mentioned just now about the fact you can, you know, kind of orientate the food a little bit around who's playing. Any particular uh, countries that have come where you've gone? Oh, no, I'm thinking of the Scandinavian, Scandinavians who eat that funny little fish, isn't it? The kind yeah. of, uh, yeah, the eels. Do you have certain countries where you go, yes, I love their food, and other countries where you go, oh, my goodness. Well, in, interesting. I think that, you know, in Britain, what a place. You know, I mean, we're... Um, we're so eclectic in our food anyway. You know, I mean, there's no way you can go, I think, around the world where you can have as many flavours in uh, as you can in London. You can just... So I don't really have to go very far. I just put a bit of a twist to it. And sometimes we were looking for some Croatian dishes. Um, and again, you've got to do, you know, I mean, the help of Google and the internet and what have you. And um, believe it or not, I was talking around the kitchen, there's two Croatian chefs have got we've got there working so they came up with a bit of a stew and uh, a dish that we use a hot pot and you know i mean it's amazing it's right underneath your nose you don't realize of the skill set you've got if you've got 250 chefs that come in to work here the chances are you've covered nearly every part of the food uh, varieties there is they've all eaten something somewhere 
Yeah, no, it's true. London is a great city for that. Um, and then your role is to head up all of this. You're certainly dressed as a chef. I can't imagine how you can uh, do that, I suppose, and not end up you know, being sat behind a desk. What, what does your role actually entail? Are you, are you in the kitchens? Uh, how many kitchens do you say you had? Yeah, about a dozen kitchens, which are uh, live kitchens. Uh, they, they, there's about 100, each one of the boxes. There's uh, 160 boxes, all got a kitchen. Um, there's all the back kitchens, prep kitchens. We've got about a dozen twelve, uh, about a dozen live kitchens. Then we've got all the kitchens in the kiosk. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so is your, your role clearly is not sat behind a laptop trying to make all this happen. What are you actually, you know, realistically, is it is it in service? Is it menu prep? Is it recruitment? Is it all of the above? Yeah, it's all of the above. You know what I mean? I, am, uh, I refer to myself that I'm just the cook at Wembley. Yeah. Um, and that comes off the line from the... Um, Steven Seagal in, um, in that film, he's just the cook on the ship. That's right. And that's a bit where I am. Yeah. I've got fingers in all pies and what have you, and we make it go. You still and, get to cook? Uh, I, I, I get involved. I get told off on many occasions because that's why I've got all the head chefs. That's why I've got people to do it. So I'm a bit like the conductor in the orchestra. I just try and bring things together. I do the firefighting. I do the liaising. I just make sure the checks and balances are done. And I'm very much about bringing on the next generation of chefs. So uh, I'm out there just watching what they're doing. My head chefs, I'm very keen to bring them on. If I'm doing it all the time, then they're not learning. So I'd rather them are doing it, so they're doing the ordering. Of course, there's checks and balances. I'm sat right next to them. I see what's coming in. Um, and they're learning because all the head chefs will all be uh, execs of uh, stadiums one day and they need to be able to feel it. So I swap the sort of main responsibilities around. I've got one looking after the uh, uh, the restaurants, one looking after the concessions, another looking after the ancillaries and all the, the football team itself um, and the back of house. Uh, and each, each match they switch around and they try and uh, learn a little bit uh, of something else. On the outside, trying to bring the uh, the stores in and all the food in uh, and making sure the equipment's right in the right place and working with my back of house. I tend to do a bit more of that and make sure they've got everything they require to be able to deliver the job. And then on the day, once we've got everything set up, I get round and visit um, Table Touch as much as I can. I love chatting to the guests. Um, I try and get round all the restaurants. Uh, and if we've got a complaint some, somewhere... And we'll have a complaint somewhere. Um, I go and find out, uh, you know, I mean, what's gone wrong? How can I make your life better? My job's here to make your life uh, and make your experience um, as best we can. And if we haven't done it, what did we do wrong? And can I do something to make it right? And I find that if you get straight onto it, I'm not shy, I'm quite happy. If you get straight onto it and get it sorted out, the, uh, the guests and the members are... Uh, really good. They really understand. And actually, I, I get on with them very well to the extent one or two of our dishes, in fact, three or four of our dishes, have come from members of saying, oh, do you think we could have that? And I'd like to see this. We have an event called Changing Room Dinners where um, they get, I think, 40 members over four nights to come into the changing rooms and we set it up like a restaurant. Uh, it's one of the perks of being the members. They come in there and we do them a menu of something that we're going to serve on the next uh, next game. So they've got first taster at it and see what's going on. 
I, I suppose I give it to him to try it out. If I don't get any complaints, I know I've got away with it. Uh, if there's uh, if they turn the nose up, I think mm, I'll, I'll have to sort of change that round a little bit. So they're my guinea pigs. Uh, but it gives them an opportunity to have a, um, an insight into what's going on. I get the chance to talk to them, find out what they're doing, what they like, which is the best restaurant, why is that working and not this uh, isn't working. Uh, the only um, conversation uh, we don't discuss is football. Right. Because uh, they're going to get 40 minutes of it, whatever it is out there uh, quite soon. Yeah. And you're much more comfortable talking about food than football anyway. So, uh, Absolutely. Well, well uh, avoided. Can you cook on that level of scale? I think people would presume that to cook at that level, you've got a compromise on uh, the sustainability of food, I suppose, the sourcing of food, how much prep you can do in-house and how much is, is kind of, you know, bought in prepped. Can you still follow the seasons and buy from kind of, you know, ethical suppliers? Um, yes is the answer. Um, I think you've got to go with um, with what you can get. So when you're looking for, I don't know, we're doing um, lamb racks and I'm doing two and a half thousand lamb racks. That's a lot to ask from a butcher around uh, the corner who hand feeds his lambs and, uh, you know, I mean, is the best ethical lamb you can get and is... Uh, bread it on, you know, I mean, breast milk and it's sort of, uh, you know, I mean, the top of the tree. Well, he can't provide me that. So I've got to go a little bit wider. So rather than, um, you know, I mean, and, and even into a county, a county can't do that now. So those numbers now we're talking about English lamb. And in fact, I think this year is going to be even harder and we're going to have to talk about British lamb. Now, um, which I'm delighted with. Anything British, great British, I'm delighted. That's what I want to deliver in here. Simple food, cook well, and if it's British, even the better. Um, on the season front, I think the um, strawberries are an example. I think we have strawberries on every menu, um, on uh, whether it's winter, spring, summer or autumn, because we can get them. And people see that as a, as an, um, a sort of an opulent part of their uh, meal if they can have strawberries and cream or there'll be strawberries as a garnish or strawberries in the drink or somewhere along the line. So we can get strawberries all year round. I, I do try and put maybe uh, more um, um, sort of comfort food, warm food towards the end of the year when it's, um, when it's a bit colder and a more lighter spring food. You know, we like to have a, a asparagus, an example. I like to use asparagus when it's in the top of the, uh, top of the tree and it's um, uh, affordable. Um, so, yes, when we can and we can get it, uh, then we'll use it. And we've got a good, all my suppliers are outstanding. They are, um, they do understand the the depth and the detail that I need to go into. And I have a conversation before every game with each of my suppliers saying, um, this is what I'd like, how I want it. We do go out to suppliers who uh, will prepare some of my terrines uh, and patties and things like that because the amount I need, and um, as you know yourself, with the HACCP, and with the uh, health and safety of the whole lot, it just ties you into a knot of um, you trying to produce that and keep all the paperwork in a straight line. So by going out to those suppliers, the third-party suppliers coming in, there's somebody we work with, we swap recipes, they're a little bit of theirs, a little bit of mine, and we've come to a compromise. Can you do me these? Can you do me, you know, I mean, 2,000 ramekin, patty, all the same size, all the same... Um, so, yeah, I think working with the suppliers, making sure it's as ethical as, as it can be, 
I'm the first to jump up and down if it doesn't look right and doesn't smell like. Uh, I don't want Chernobyl chickens. I want British chicken, and I know the difference. And the suppliers know I know. So, um, and and fruit and veg, if I, I feel for the fruit and veg uh, suppliers because the weather has not been kind to us at all in the fruit and vegetable department. So we sometimes have to go further afield. Um, you know, I mean, some of the peppers and things like that we're having to get from Spain uh, and Italy, just, they're just not happening over this neck of the woods. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, a, a, there's a, a passion and a drive to use uh, local, uh, use um, traceable uh, food and uh, an ethical food. I think that's what I like to do. And also it helps the story um, that when I'm talking to our guests and our um uh, members when they're here I want to talk about where that lamb's come from you know I mean it's nice salt marsh lamb as the salt air comes off the sea onto the grass and they're eating it it just makes that lamb the difference in that lamb and it's easy to cook it's better to present and uh, it's just so um, succulent when they're eating it and, and it's nice to know that story of how it all comes together mm, yeah it's nice to know that can be done at scale I was with uh, do you know Hawksmoor restaurant? yeah, yeah absolutely I do yeah, yeah okay, so I was with Will Beckett earlier yeah, today yeah. Yeah. Enough from from Hawksmoor, and uh, he was saying that you know even at their level, the scale that they've got to, you know, he'd phone his local butcher because he tries to buy as much as possible, you know, direct from the farms. Yeah. But even at his level, when he phones up and he's like, you know, it's, it's Will from Hawksmoor, and they're like, you know, no, yeah. uh, we can't do it. We're not interested. And I can imagine if you say Harry, it's Harry from uh, Wembley Stadium, and I've got, you yeah, know, I need a couple of bits for Saturday that they must. We will, we will get told uh, please, lots of people. Away, uh, the uh, Oh, we can supply you your, your lamb. Okay, yeah. fine. So I need a 2,000 lamb racks. Oh, uh, well, is it all right if it's frozen? <laughs> and can I start giving you six months out? Yeah. No, that's not what the game's about. So all the suppliers out there, first of all, is can the suppliers. Yeah, so straight true. away you start to narrow it down to what you can do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like a story behind food. Well, we'll come back to that again a little yep, bit because okay. uh, I'm interested from a, from the military perspective in a similar way because it, it, uh, you know getting uh, food to Wembley Stadium must be a challenge. But how you get uh, food to a tent in Afghanistan is another story. But we'll give that some some context in a minute. So your career, so you know, to be able to achieve the numbers that you talk about and and uh, yeah, just that that level of complexity, I suppose. Um, I've spoken to uh, Alex Aitken, who was a Michelin-starred chef, and one of the things that really uh, appealed to him about the kitchen from being a sort of a young lad was that almost that that you know what he referred to as that military style. Uh, management in a kitchen because it needed to have you know kind of hierarchy and it need you know everything is so time specific in a kitchen and I think there's often a very different uh, management style front of house uh, than there is in the kitchen because because of those timings your career did actually start that way so you can you can genuinely answer that question is is a kitchen in general even in civilian world similar to a military kitchen and can you just explain a little bit about the start of your career and uh, and, and the military background there's two questions there. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, I think that in a kitchen, uh, you know, I mean, we have the team of chefs in there and we call them a brigade of chefs. And I think that in itself tells you that uh, really it's built on uh, a military organisation. That's why we have the exec chef, the head chef, sous chef, CDPs, um, uh, demis, commies, assistants. So there's your picking order in the um, uh, in the in the kitchen itself. And actually, I think it's it's what's fascinating about our trade. You know, I mean, there isn't many other careers where you've got about a dozen steps 
to get up to uh, and you can see each one as you're moving up and then you've got all the dis- different disciplines whether it's stadia fine dining restaurant um, school meals prison service you know I mean there's all those different areas of serving food and um, yeah the opportunities to um, uh, to get to a stage and then get promoted to move on and see a different part of a kitchen or that that area so from a professional point of view of, um, of promotion, um, the kitchen is is the best place. And it's, as I say, built on the likes of the military. So you start off on the military as a young private soldier. And I joined the army in 1974 as a young 16 year old. Um, how did I get involved in catering? I used to work with my mum at Woolworths. Not a lot of you will know what Woolworths is, but it's um, it was a shop that sold penny... It wasn't, it wasn't too long ago that it disappeared, was it? Was that, is it three, four years ago now? Is it? It's, is it? I thought it was. Well. Maybe it's longer. Anyway, so our time flies. Maybe so it's a my, uh, my, I used to go up there and help my mum cook some of the staff meals. Um, and I got myself a little job in a pub where I used to do all the washing up. And one day the chef said to me, I need some carrots peeling. And um, so I thought, well, it's better than washing up. I'll peel these carrots. And I'd peel these carrots. And he was so complimentary how I peel these carrots. He asked me to chop them as well. Um, the I didn't chop them as well as he wanted them, but and I still had all my digits on the end of my arm, so I felt that I'd done very well. And he said to me, you would make a very good chef. I thought, really? Well, just from your carrots. Just from my carrots. Um, and uh, it was an opportunity that uh, my, I had come from the back streets of Burnley, uh, Lancashire lad. Uh, I knew the policeman on a first-name terms, and I thought that... Um, I didn't want them to know any more about me. So an opportunity came up to join the services. I did go uh, from Burnley up to Preston with my uh, three-piece suite on and uh, tie. My mum had dressed me up to go and join the Royal Navy. And when I got there at 12 o'clock, I knocked on the door and looked in the window and there was nobody in there. And uh, so as I'm hanging around outside, um, a, a sergeant from the guards comes in he said what are you after young man uh, I said oh I've, I've come to join the navy he said oh they're not in at the moment uh, it was a tri-service uh, where the army navy and air force use the same office so he said they're not in if you want come and sit down and wait for them and I'm in there of course a big area but the uh, guardsman said well what are you what are you wanting to do in the navy I said oh uh, I want to be a, a cook ah the best cook is in the army you don't want to mess around with the navy so uh, an hour later, I'd signed up in the army and got back home. My mother said to me, well, you went out this morning to join the Navy and you've now joined the army. I said, well, they were closed. <laughs> so, um, but the Navy is, a, you know, I mean, all the services is a fant- all brilliant at uh, doing what they do and all do it slightly different. Um, so I joined um, uh, Aldershot, 1974, as a young apprentice and I did a three-year apprenticeship uh, to get my sitting gills um, and then soon got posted out to, um, I went to Catrick straight away and then was posted out to Cyprus for two years to go uh, and work at the end of the uh, EOCA, the um, the Cyprus troubles that were out there. I was at, uh, went right at the very end when they were still feeding some of the refugees so here I am as a young sort of uh, just 
18, I think I might have just, just been 17, three quarters, um, feeding refugees. And, you know, I mean, that has scarred my life. You know, I mean, you know, that refugees are as far as the eye can see and you're feeding them some soup and some bread because that's what the allocation was. And it is absolutely um, heart-shattering for these people to come up with their hands cupped asking, can you have a little bit more bread? And they used to whittle bits of stone and uh, wood and bring you up, can I give you this just to have some more bread? And, of course, you couldn't give anybody any more than you were told to give. And I had guys either side of me, the Welsh Guards were with me at the time, and the, um, to make sure that nobody, you know, I mean, turned the tables over and whatever. But what a sad state of affairs. And, of course, as I've moved through my army career, I've seen lots of refugees and lots of people perhaps less fortunate than ourselves. And it is so terrible um, that people, when you've got nothing... And I mean nothing, it's very terrible. And you are the man or the person who's delivering what bit they can have. Um, you know, I mean, these aid agencies, it must be a nightmare for them to do that full time. Um, but that took me for six months. And then I pretty much uh, leapt through my career uh, in different kitchens with the Welsh Guards, the Signals, the um, hospitals, um, the uh, mechanics, the Air Corps, all different infantry. Eventually get into the sergeant's mess. Uh, becoming master chef. So this is when you're in charge of your own team uh, of chefs. And always the chefs are soldiers first and chefs second. So you've got to be able to shoot your rifle and run and do whatever you need to do. Um, but uh, the teams that I've had and I've worked with have been brilliant all through my career. What, what was the time frame, sorry, for, from starting to being in the sergeant's mess? Uh, um, I would say about uh, eight years, ten years. Okay. Um, I, I on my journey to the sergeant's mess uh, and to uh, being a warrant officer, I came out of catering for about three years to go and train the next genera uh, generation of recruits. So I became a sergeant major. So all screaming, all shouting. Um, these are recruits, not not chef recruits. These are chef recruits. Chef recruits. So okay. and I'm teaching their military aspect uh, of their career. So the idea, they've got to learn how to be a soldier and then they'd go up into the kitchen and somebody else would be teaching them um, how to be a chef. Lots of our chef instructors are all from the civilian world anyway. So teaching what we've learned in the military chefing is from the civilian world. Mm. So I'm the guy that sort of teaches them how to march and uh, make sure the bed and their lockers are all clean and puts them into jail and shouts and screams. They, um, they were very good. Uh, I don't uh, about 200 recruits I used to uh, have in my company. And they um, they nicknamed me uh, HTB, Harry the Bastard. <laughs> uh, that went down very well because uh, I, was, uh, I was there to make sure. I was local parental care of right. these youngsters. You know, I mean, there's a 16 to 17-year-old, and they come from all over the world. Yeah. And my job is to make sure to bring them together, teamwork, and get them gelled together, ready to be posted out to Cyprus, Hong Kong, Ireland, wherever they were going to go to. Did, did they tend to be mainly interested in cooking? Was the kind of military yep. side of it a surprise? That, no, that, no, that wasn't, no. Not necessarily a surprise, but not necessarily the bit they wanted to do. Did they mainly want to cook rather than, I don't know, I'm imagining getting shouted at at 4am, told to jump out your bunk and go and run around a forest or something when all you wanted to do was make an eggs benedict? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, they all knew when they came that military was part and parcel of it, soldier chef. 
And actually, the reason they enjoy it is they don't get bored in the kitchen all the time. And there was an element, one is keeping the fitness up and it's about being um, a proper, you know I mean, upright, standing, good human being and looking after yourself and cooking was your trade. So all the good bits about being in the military, on time, clean, cleanliness, is all part and parcel of that. And of course that made them fit for uh, being a cook. We'd already got them trained discipline wise. And as you mentioned earlier on, discipline in the kitchen is what we need. So we're actually um, in the background, slowly making them right at discipline and, 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 and teaching them and uh, ready for when they're gonna be a chef. Uh, and then they go up to the kitchens and then get their sitting ills. It'd be, um, you know, I mean, uh, two-year apprenticeship they do and then move on um, with their sitting ills. Okay. And that's still the same? So that route into that's the army? That's still, still similar, but it's um, national vocational qualifications and uh, those sort of things now. Vocational qualifications, absolutely brilliant for chefs. Uh, um, the only way you can give them qualification, they need to cook. You can't sit behind a desk and learn how to be a chef. You need to have your fingers in the pastry to be able to do it. And that's what's good. That's why NVQs for chefs are good. Um, uh, so after, then eventually they, um, uh, they decide to commission me. Um, I was as surprised as them, but uh, them being the, the army. And, uh, and my first job after being commissioned was being a personnel officer uh, and a family's officer to the Gurkha Regiment. So sorry for the, uh, excuse my naivety, but being commissioned, what does that mean? Being commissioned, so that's going from a sergeant major to a captain. Okay. Uh, of course, it puts, um, uh, takes the rank off your arm, puts it onto your shoulder, so I become a commissioned officer. Right. Um, so I was commissioned as a captain, uh, as a, uh, and then I went as a personnel officer to a transport regiment looking after the Gurkha soldiers. So completely different, but of course, it, what makes you a little bit better, I've just done 23, three years cooking. Now I'm, I'm, I'm now doing management and I'm now into logistics. And this is why this fits me well for something like Wembley, because this is more about logistics than it is about cooking, getting the right place, the right stuff in the right place at the right time, the right cost with the right people. That's yeah. what that becomes. Uh, having done that, uh, very, uh, uh, very good. So an interesting uh, point whilst working with the Gurkha soldiers, I was uh, partly responsible to help them um, bring their families from Nepal. Um, that didn't happen. And uh, at the end of that, uh, very luckily, uh, Her Majesty um, uh, awarded me the MBE for, for doing that. So that was a nice sort of surprise, having done that project and done that work. And of course, now all the Gurkhas that are here working with us, um, I was part of an early, uh, um, an early part of bringing all that together. Um, and then I go on to do um, the um, ceremonial, state and ceremonial in London, working for Her Majesty the Queen, doing um, all her food-related things outside of Buckingham Palace, wherever she's eating around. We're involved in making sure that that all worked. Had a small team there. Um, and just... Uh, that involved making sure that the contractors were working in the right place, making sure the food that was delivered. So it's just bringing it together, not physically 
putting the beans on the toast, mm. but making sure that we've got enough beans and enough bread to deliver. And what sort of events is that? This is big state events by this This point, is state events, state and ceremonial. Yeah, right. big, big things. So yeah. this is what, the governments or, or yeah, royalty from around this the world? Is, yeah, this um, is the uh, beating the tree, the state owner parliament, uh, funerals, or, or, you know, I mean, anything, anything like, anything big. Right. And if the Queen's visiting somewhere in, uh, somewhere around one of the regiments and what have you, just making sure that you're on side, making sure that um, uh, the protocol, so of course Her Majesty, just making sure that, um, that she's looked after. Uh, and the protocol uh, of food and feeding is uh, what it should be. And um, uh, whilst most people know what needs to be done, it's just making sure that things are done and it's done uh, in accordance of um, how the British Army want to do it. Any particularly uh, memorable events that you did in that time? Um, all of them are memorable. Um, I remember on one event we did... Um, uh, uh, a curry lunch in the middle of uh, City Hall, in the square of City Hall there. And um, so I just put up a tent and uh, just feed a couple of thousand people for curry. What they wanted to do is they wanted to have the world's biggest curry. So they came and said to me, right, Harry, can you arrange for the Guinness Book of Records the feed the world's biggest curry? So again, sucker I am, I thought, well, uh, let's get on the internet and have a look and see what goes on on there. And uh, to find that the world's biggest curry was done out in uh, India. What a surprise. <laughs> what a surprise. And, of course, it fed 20,000 people. And um, they didn't have too many EHOs out there. Yeah. And that was my challenge because whilst the EHOs, they're my best friends. Of course. And we worked very closely together. I felt that I couldn't do the world's biggest curry. No. But what we could do is the world's biggest dispersed curry. And what that meant is that we would have feed a couple of thousand in London, which is what I was doing. But on the same day, each of the regiments around the world would all do their curries in their regiments. So overall, we did well to get the world's biggest curry, the, the fact it was a dispersed curry, but they have a, a world uh, military curry week now wow. on the back of that. And I remember uh, having this uh, role to go and do, and those people who were involved in it will know all the challenges that we had, and there were a few. But the first challenge is, as we're putting up the tents, is the vicar comes out of the church from around the corner of the priest and says, my dear gentleman... It is five o'clock in the morning. What is all the noise? I goes, I have a lunch to get up for 12 o'clock and I need some cover. Uh, now, uh, he said, well, could you just do it with no noise? <laughs> and I looked at him. I thought, uh, anyway, we got on with it. <laughs> I said a few choice words. Did you let him have lunch? Um, no, but I've since met him on two occasions. Uh, but I didn't know he lived in the church. Right. which is unusual, you know, I mean, he lives in the church or lives yeah. at the back of the church or something. And it was just so funny. Here we are doing, you know, I mean, a charitable event uh, on a charitable piece of uh, ground for all the right reasons. And yet the person to put poo-poo, it was the priest who yeah. comes out and whatever. The, yeah. There's a certain irony. Yeah. Um, it is how, what life is. How many people? I, so that was, was a couple it, of thousand people. But, but globally, when you say, I mean, it must be a nice thing to be able to orchestrate to go, right, all of the regiments around the globe are going to do this on the same day. Yeah, place. so they, uh, uh, they reckon they've done about 30,000 thousand um uh, on a day I, I i think they're still in the process of trying to calibrate i think what um uh, the guinness book of records wanted they wanted some facts 
right. they needed some. They needed if they were doing it in a hundred places, they needed a hundred people to be out there yeah, to film it, uh, all that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's one of them things that you just um, uh, just live on the dream and you make yeah. as many numbers as you want now. So nobody ever really knows. But as far as we're concerned, we did the yeah. world's biggest um, dispersed curry. And when you say they wanted a Guinness Book of Records, is this the Queen herself? Did she uh, come no, and no, say, Harry, no. I've always wanted to, to be in the Guinness Book of Records? No, I'm surprised. I, I would imagine she would. I would imagine she's in there somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> I, that would so. be somewhere. Um, well, she's the longest reigning monarch. Yeah. So true, she must be in for that. Yeah, true. And, um, but uh, no, uh, this was, um, I think the Army Benevolent Fund right. wanted to raise some funds. And of course, Her Majesty, uh, in fact, on that particular particular day, uh, Prince Charles um, was the representative of Her Majesty. Um, and again, he was very well on it. He knew what was going on and we had the opportunity to have a little bit of a laugh about the whole thing. And um, I remember he wanted, um, we had his uh, gin and tonic all ready to go and he came in and he said, I think I'd love a cup of tea. Really? And of course, where have we got cups and saucers in the middle of a tent? In the um, anyway, so I sent one of my boys down to Costa, uh, run down there to go and get a cup of tea for him, and he was running back with the cup of tea up the road. And of course, if Costa only knew where that cup of tea was going, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but it's what make it's what uh, again. Uh, everything I do, I've been very blessed that I've got teamwork. Yeah, teamwork together, everybody achieves more. Absolutely, and that's why Wembley is what Wembley is. It, it's a team. They may play together on the football field. We reflect that back of house and uh, what we do. I, I'm only as good as my guys putting it together. Yeah, yeah, no, 100% always the way. Um, when you're doing things that get like, you know, Trooping of the Colour in those state events, is it, do you have the flexibility of menu choice with those kind of things? Is that um, down to you? Or is this, does, does um, Elizabeth say, I really fancy a tuna melt, Harry? Yeah, if only. I would be it would be wrong for me to say that she um, that she does not get involved because she does. But to be quite honest, the machine is so well oiled that we all know what's required and where it's required, and um, it's uh, in the royal household and how it works together. Is uh, it's all rehearsed, it's prepared. There's no lastminute.com. 99% of everything we do, we've rehearsed, we've got a procedures in place and it all comes together. It's all like military training all coming together, everybody from the, the palace itself, St. James's, from the military, from the foreign office, from wherever, from whatever's working, uh, we just come together to make it work and we all know what we're doing long, long, long before the day. Um, and uh, do I have a choice in changing menus? And unless there is a, a, a real reason to change it, then there's no point changing it. Yeah. Must have been a fascinating insight there. Did you pinch yourself as a, as a lad from Lancashire who, uh, who who was very well known locally to uh, to be serving lunch for the Queen? Or? Yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, I do still to this day. I have a board, uh, a piece of paper off a big board, what the newspapers used to put up outside the shops that says local boy cooks for Queen. And uh, my mum had got a picture of something and give it. And of course, uh, when I got home, I was a local. So, you know, I mean, I live in a village that has a cobbled street through it and what have you. We've got a post office and a pub. 
Um, so um, every, when I go home, everybody comes to look at me. Uh, they don't come to see me, they come to look at me. Uh, and they still come in the house, get a cup of sugar and walk out and it's that sort of thing. So uh, for me to be down here doing it, um, doing the business and look here, uh, National Stadium, mm-hmm. uh, head of culinary here, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. No, no amazing, exciting. Um, so as, as well as uh, those roles, one of the things that jumped out, you did active service as well. You were in Afghanistan. Was I, it Camp Bastion at one point? Camp Bastion. So I would like to say that I was partly involved in rebuilding the kitchen in Camp Bastion. So um, uh, after I'd finished doing the state ceremony, I went to the headquarters of the army and my job was to go out to... Uh, so my job then is head of catering for the British Army, both at home and an operation. That's also an awesome job description, isn't it? It so. is a brilliant job yeah. description, and that's what got me my other jobs. <laughs> um, and again, when you're writing your CV and you're putting that, uh, you know, I mean, that first liner, you need to get a, a line on there that jumps out of you. Mm. Why is, why are they going to ask you to see you? You need to get it in the first couple of lines or they'll get bored. So yeah. I thought that would do it, and yeah. it seemed to work. Um, so yeah, I operated out of Andover, and again, it's a team effort. Um, so making sure we've got enough chefs out there, making sure the food goes out there. Again, there's a whole organisation that brings the food. A lot of it comes out of the UK, Does it? and it sets off on a, 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 a on um, uh, on wagons, on a train of wagons going out there. Um, can take up to six to eight weeks to go out there, depending on what route it goes out there to get into Afghanistan. But you know, I mean, sets off from uh, Winchester across. Over the uh, on the ferry over into France and then up through Germany over over into the stands down into Afghanistan and depending on the route and the uh, security of how it's going to go into there. Another route was for long-standing things was a ship uh, would take the food round and up into um, um, into uh, Pakistan and up the. Uh, um, uh, the routes into uh, Afghanistan onto the border through there. And of course, there's the, um, so that's by land, by sea, and of course, by air, um, um, through uh, military aircraft and civilian aircraft to drop food in. Um, a story of that um, on one of the journeys of the train of vehicles going out there just before Christmas, uh, the Taliban managed to uh, blow it all up. Um, so uh, round about the October, we're trying to get now um, our Christmas fair over there for all the boys and girls over there. As you can imagine, um, the kitchen that we worked in is feeding about 25,000 people per meal. Um, and the idea of that is making sure that um, you've got um, um, all the turkey, all the mince pies, everything you need for, for Christmas Day. You know, I mean, that would be... Uh, food in the military is very much about uh, uh, morale. Food's not good, morale goes down. Morale goes down, the operational effectiveness is broken. Um, so we are very, very much part of the operational modus operandi of how the military work. And uh, footballers out there, if I don't get the food into them right and it's wrong, they won't be doing as well. Mm. I'm not responsible for every time they lose. Um I'm responsible for every time they win. Uh, but again, food is so important. Food, you are what you eat. 
Yeah. And um, and to be able to do that and get the food in. So when they shot up the train, um, moments notice, we need to get a plane out there. And I remember talking to my colleague uh, saying, oh, how are we going to get the food out there? I need a plane. He says, not a problem, I'll sort your plane out. <laughs> um, and we got some big plane. It was um, uh, uh, one of the big Russian Antonovs. Right. Uh, you know, it's as big as Wembley Stadium, these things and what have you. And we need to fill it with, you know, I mean, a dozen containers or whatever it is to go out there of turkeys. Um, and, of course, uh, we got the Antonov. And I always remember him saying, right, we've got the Antonov. The problem I'm having is getting pilots. I guess... What, you've got a plane and no pilot? I was going to you say, know you mean? can sort out serving 25,000 people three times a day. I'm sure you should be able to find your pilot. Um, but, of course, it's all to do with the airspace and what have you, who can fly and commercial pilots and what have you. Anyway, I'm sure they got a couple of uh, guys who was quite happy uh, for a couple of bob and uh, it cost a million pound or something to take the plane over there, drop the food and come out. It's a good day's work, you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, but um, it's just an experience of making that happen mm. and knowing that the troops got Christmas was um, was a real well. It's a relief in one hand, but it's sort of a, a an accomplishment to know that you've just brought that all together. And it wasn't me on my own. There was, you know, I mean, loads of people make it happen. Mm. I'm just at the end, just annoying away. You know, I mean, making things uh, happen for me. Yeah, is that still operational, Camp Bastion? Camp Bastion is still operational, but in a completely different. Um, it's done by contract. Right as opposed to the military. So there's um, uh, a couple of contractors uh, that are out there that are delivering it, and it's a different um, regime that's out there at the moment. It's more of a monitoring yeah. as opposed to an offensive. So how long were there? Was that 25,000 British troops based there? Uh, no, so that, that was, no, no. American. So the amount of troops of, overall was perhaps a little bit more than that. What we were feeding in Camp Bastion um, was 25,000, and that was a mixture of... Um, Brits, Canadians, Estonians, Americans, uh, the Afghan police, the Afghan uh, army. Uh, and I know that we used to start cooking the rice at eight o'clock in the morning for the evening meal. That's how much rice we needed wow. to get to uh, feed these people. And this is all from a tented kitchen in the uh, desert. This the was, uh, so my role was to move this from a tented that it was into a semi um permanent kitchen so a bit of a prefab kitchen to bring this together so i was there in the uh, the transition of field kitchen uh, to moving it into a little bit more of a strategic sort of uh, uh, mobile kitchen okay and nutrition wise we mentioned the uh, contrast i suppose footballers to army recruits is is the army uh, into nutrition now from a perspective of i suppose of what's good for you how many calories do you need at the day i'm thinking kind of you know ration packs back in the day uh have they followed a similar thing to sport and kind of gone right this is you know to perform at this level this is what we need to feed people or is it if you don't give them a steak and kidney pie they're just going to be really unhappy yeah um no we are the front end i think in the military we have um uh, all the ration packs are um, state-of-the-art ration packs. And in fact, and there's a commercial organisation that makes them for the military. And um, when you buy them out of the green packaging, they are for mountaineers, they're for extreme sportsmen. They are the same pack um, for all these people doing uh, high-endurance things. Um, so it's the same food. Therefore, the... Um, 
um, the calories um, that are in one are in uh, for both people. And as much as a footballer needs what he needs, he needs his um, carbs and his uh, vitamins and proteins and all this sort of thing. Well, the military need exactly the same. Mm. And very much, you know, I mean, um, uh, uh, as they say, Napoleon said, you know, I mean, a soldier marches on his stomach and it's as true today as it's ever been. Um, and uh, they're, uh, and really civilian life is pretty much you are what you eat. You can see the people who are marching on the stomachs and the people who want to, need to do a bit more work. But you are what you are. And, um, and I know there's some medical reasons around some of the other bits, but pretty much uh, what you put in there needs to go somewhere. And if you're not doing enough energy and enough bits to move around, then you need to do something about it. For me... I would say I'm well built and you would never trust a skinny chef. And <laughs> I'd like to promote that um, I am a healthy eater and a good advocate of my food. Yeah, no, perfect. Um, I'll come away from uh, Afghanistan, but I've got to ask as well. Uh, sort of local fruits and vegetables. So you talk about sort of shipping stuff out in huge containers and trains and stuff like that. Is there a local market? Can you buy any of the stuff locally or literally does everything go from the UK? Uh, no, the um, fruit and veg came from Dubai. Uh, right. predominantly, um, and, and the, the team in UK that were sourcing this have got markets around the world, as you can imagine, for any conflicts, and they would know where they could buy this from. So stuff that came from the UK was the meat, the frozen meats and the, the tinned and the packaging and the dry goods. Fruit and veg predominantly, I think onions and potatoes might come from the UK, uh, but uh, pretty much the um, uh, the fresh fruit and veg, strawberries and all that sort of stuff came from Dubai and over that side. Yeah, and then budget wise, are you talking like a, a you know an amount per head? Is that how it's calculated, or is you know I'm just trying to think again of the sort of vast yeah. scale. Yeah, so we work it out. You know, I mean, pretty much you, you get a pound, um, about a pound fifty to feed a soldier per day. Really, and um, uh, but because good value, it's a, isn't it? it is a lot of money. You know, I mean, well, no, for yeah, a soldier. No, but yeah, yeah, it's good. It's, it's uh, good value. That I wish uh, I could feed my kids for one pound fifty a day. But when you're feeding in that sort of bulk, yeah. Um, it uh, it works out very well. So of course the um, uh, uh, how it how it all comes together because it's on a budget on an operational budget. Of course, no one's looking at the um, uh, have you got enough money for this, that, and the other. It comes on an operational budget, and of course the operations part of the MOD. You pay your taxes. You've got to make sure that your tax money is being paid and uh, and uh, and used properly. Uh, and therefore my job was to make sure we're spending it correctly. Mm. Um, so yes, I'm accountable, and I had people above me who would be checking um, the books. I have people out there who are doing the accounts, and um, there is a, a full um, open book uh, accounting procedure, and you can see exactly how many people we fed, how much it cost us, where it worked and where it didn't. Uh, and, and from that, we learn from different uh, different operations, how it works. That's why we've got it into such a, um, a, a good position now. Yeah, it must be an interesting dichotomy. I remember interviewing Nick Leach, who'd um, done all sorts of sort of super high-end private chef stuff, but then ended up trying to run, not try, and he did. He ran the catering hospital for a number of years. And, and the irony, I suppose, of the super tight budgets that you've got to try and feed, you know, a human being every day in a hospital, but the fact that actually, you, you know, you're trying to make them better so serving them you know cheap food or poor quality food uh is contradictory because you're just going to make them there longer and it's the same in the army i guess isn't it is that you want peak performance you want people who can you know operate at this, the extremes of human capabilities but you know, obviously you've got to try and do that on a budget so it must be a challenge 
Um, yeah, it, it, it's not easy, uh, but the, uh, the it, it's good fun. It's what you train for. The idea of starting at 14, 15 years of age, um, they didn't give me that job the day I walked in. You know what yeah. I mean? Everything that you do. So I was a chef in Cross Glen. I was on the stove. I was working in Northern Ireland. I was doing, you know what I mean? I was on the streets at night time. I was in the kitchen during the daytime, backwards and forwards. I was a warrant officer, a master chef in Northern Ireland with a parachute regiment. Um, I was the 2nd Battalion of the Parachute Regiment's Master Chef. So looking after the paras. Uh, now there's another, you know what I mean, another story in itself. Um, you know what I mean, they are at the peak of physical fitness. Um, you know what I mean, they need all their calories. They, they, they come to the dining room with plates bigger than bedpans. You know what I mean, they need feeding and, uh, of course, they burn off the energy. Uh, but they want, um, I'm a great believer that if it's fresh, good, food um uh, then it's then it's brilliant if you, you you can't really feed people with crap um and sort of um uh, I, I mentioned early on you know i mean chernobyl chickens filled with water and all this sort of stuff mm. it's just not cost effective you may as well buy good buy once and buy it right i agree and uh that's how i work here yeah. i can't be doing with another delivery I have the deliveries coming in on a match day, you know what I mean, just for bread rolls alone here. Um, I have two Pantex of bread rolls, you know what I mean, I need 30,000 bread rolls coming in. Just to dispatch the bread rolls when they arrive here um, is nearly half a day's work. That's just the bread rolls to get around all the concessions. You're not doing that yourself, Harry, are you? <laughs> Again, it's a team. I, 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 my job is just to... I just to, thought so Harry for half a day a week is... Uh, um, yeah, delivery to get rolls. those round, that's a lot of work. But if yeah. that bread isn't fresh, it's baked in the morning... Here, it's in the concessions. In the afternoon, it was baked, yeah. ready for uh, our customers. Because whilst we've got a burger going out, the burger is our uh, bespoke burger, um, and the bread rolls around it, as again, is our bespoke bread that we um, that, that we serve it with, with all the accompaniments. Yeah, amazing. That's uh, my, my last army question, but do you get a bigger budget for the guy with the plate the side of a bed band? Does the parachute regiment get more money than your, uh, your £1.50, or um, yeah. can you not answer that? Yeah, no, 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 no I can't. <laughs> Um, there is um, the the, um, the difference in food that um, uh, that the paras will have. They're quite happy to have um, stews, meats, uh, that sort of thing. Where in Afghanistan, I was serving them fillet steak. Um, you know, I mean, as I say, they had top quality food. I had to make sure that they were at the peak of their fitness, and that's what they enjoyed. Because when you're out for six months, you can't be eating the same food all the time where when you're in barracks in UK or in Northern Ireland and what have you, you might go to, you know I mean, one, two meals a day because of everything else that's happening. Then you've got that mix with any operational rations and then you've got time off, you're doing your own thing. So I suppose when you're out on operations, you've got a captive audience. When you're in barracks, you've got a little bit more of a sway. So you don't, um, there's a couple of enhancements that you get. Um, to make uh, to feed the paras than you do for those guys on operations. Yeah, amazing. So 34 years of that, and then you think, right, I'm going to leave, and you end up at the Olympics. How does that happen? What, what, why did you leave? Why did I leave? That's what the general asked me when I said I was resigning. Um, there was a couple of reasons. One is that this was an opportunity that I saw. So somebody knocked on my door and said, oh, we need someone to run the, uh, uh, to work on the Olympics. So I, um, interesting. Doesn't happen every day either, does it? It doesn't. Uh, Olympics, again, 
I thought, first of all, they were going to ask me to do the 100 metres, <laughs> which I felt I wouldn't be able to do, yeah. well, not in the time that they had anyway. Um, so uh, I thought, well, first of all, that was very nice for them to ask me. The team that was being put together, I knew two of the team, and I knew they were good operators. These are non-military people. I hope mm, there's an opportunity here for me to see what's going on. Um, and I suppose after 34 years in the army and I was at the top, I, I'd got the top job in the army, top military caterer in the army. And you know, I'd been doing that for about three, four years. And you know what? Uh, there was a moment in my life, I was coming back from Afghanistan and in the uh, aeroplane I was coming back with, there were some coffins. And in one of them coffins was a friend, a friend, uh, not a close friend, but a friend. And I'm sat in there with these coffins in front. And it was a time in my life I thought to myself, Harry, I think you've done your stint. There are lots of other people who want to do this. Uh, and really, you are getting a bit old and a bit slow. And if they're catching these people, they'll be catching you. So when we landed in Bryce Norton, it was a moment in my life of just to say, thank you, I've had enough. So when I came back, and the things in the military are changing for the better as everything changes. And I think that I need to come out, let the next generation take over and move it forward. I'd, I felt I'd done my bit. Uh, I'd thoroughly enjoyed it. So there's an opportunity here to come out and get a job. Um, somebody looking for me, somebody wanting me. I thought that was very good. It means I wouldn't have to run around trying to find a job. I would have been coming out of the army in the next couple of years anyway. So all roads lead to Rome. I asked the general, can I leave? He, I told him why. And he said, I accept. And um, I joined uh, LOCOG, mm. um, working with um, Jan Matthews and the team doing that. Mm. Amazing. Uh, I thought I was going to be, again, doing some contract work and some uh, feeding work. I went to, first of all, take on the London Stadium. And um, uh, that was uh, seen that um, there's only about 16 days of the Olympics where anything goes on in the Olympic Stadium, apart from the opening and closing ceremony. So uh, Jan thought um, she would utilise my skills elsewhere. And I went over to Excel. Uh, the exhibition centre where we had um, five Olympic arenas in there for both the Paras, uh, for both the Olympics and the Paralympics. And we're talking of a footfall in there of 147,000 people per day. Um, so again, numbers, it all works. You just, again, I, it's a teamwork. I, the, I had the volunteers working with me, I had a full team in there, I had the support from Jan and her team. And uh, again, you trained for it. You've got everything together. The contractor was uh, Compass working with us. The whole lot just worked together. Um, and I think we produced a very good um, Olympics. I was very proud to be part and parcel of it. Um, and then towards the end of that, somebody said, um, do I want to go and work in a hotel? I will come to that. Uh, okay. But just before you do, 147,000 people a day. Yeah. Mind-blowing. Is this, who's this? Is this the public? Is this the athletes? Is this corporate events? Is it all of the above again? Is it like a... Yes, this is a, everybody. A, believe it or not, it's from, a mini Wembley. From the, um, the, uh, the athletes, uh, from the judges, the coaches, um, the general public, the officials, um, our own staff, 
LOCOG staff, all uh, the policing staff, and of course, I've got a battalion in there of army doing the security. Uh, of course, yeah. They came uh, in at the last minute. G4S, uh, I remember G4S, that. Yeah, yeah, they came in at the end. Um, so a real eclectic mix. And um, I was doing something, you know, I mean, that, that was an experience. I bet it was. At the end of it, they asked me, would I like to go off and do the, um, the games up in Glasgow? Uh, I was quite happy to say no. Really? Um, I was oh, doing nice. something like 16 hours, 17 hours a day for nearly six months. It's quite reassuring to the normal mortal out there probably to know that it is possible to break you, Harry, and that maybe 150,000 people eating every day might not be fun. It, it, it was, uh, you, you run on your adrenaline. Yeah. Um, there was a bit of a, a dip from the Olympics. There's a bit of a gap between that and then the Paralympics. Paris, yeah. But what was good for me, um, and in hindsight... I actually enjoyed the Paralympics more than I did the Olympics. Not just because it was a bit quieter? Or? Uh, it, it, it was a little bit quiet, but not much quieter. But uh, to see what those people do, it's incredible. And, of course, it brought a different... It brought um, different um, uh, guests coming in. Uh, again, uh, people who got uh, wheelchairs and various other things a lot more to sort of see what was going on. And again, we had to make sure that all our counters were the right level, make sure we got accessibility wherever it was, a lot more for the Paralympics. And of course, for um, the judges and everybody else, all those, it was a different a different sort of mix, but it was a lot more friendlier mix. It, were, it worked very good. Whether we'd had the practice of the Olympics to do it, mm. um, but I thoroughly enjoyed I finished um, on a high with the Paralympics. I thought it might have been a bit of a damp squid, mm. but it wasn't. I, uh, I worked right up until the last day um, with the Paralympics and all the staff. Again, it's a teamwork. You can't do this on your own. No one can do it on your own. Mm. And everybody from around the world who comes to uh, help us out on these things, uh, it's brilliant. It just works. I think as a country, we had a very good reputation for delivering the Paralympics. Don't we compared to historically when it Agreed. hadn't always Absolutely. been so big? So, Agreed. Absolutely. Know, amazing, amazing opportunity. So um, you think you'll go for a rest and you go to one of the biggest uh, hotels in London? Is that right for a little for a little lie down? Yes, a friend of mine said to me, "Do you want to? Uh, they're, they're looking for someone to be an exec chef. So you you will know yourself that the industry of restaurants is one." Uh, the industry of hotels is another. It's twenty four seven hotels. Mm. You know, it doesn't sleep. And um, uh, I went up to have a look at the Grove. I don't know the Grove. I don't come. From, didn't, you know, don't know nothing about Watford and whatever. I thought Watford was Watford Gap. Um, so I went out on a Sunday morning um, to go and have a look at the place. So it's a stunning place, golf course. It's a, a, again another um, uh, location um, to visit. It's a sort of. Uh, uh, five-star spa and the whole resort. Um, and I have my, um, I have a Nanny McPhee moment, I call it. I, I, I sort of say, um, when you need me, I will stay. Uh, but when you no neither need me, but just want me, then I'm going. <clears throat> and it's a bit like at the army. They, they didn't need me now. I'd done it. Uh, but they wanted me to stay, but didn't need me, so away I go. I suppose the Olympics was slightly different, is that um, it finished. Yeah. <laughs> so they didn't need me and they didn't want me. Yeah. They didn't need me, certainly, and they um, they uh, they wanted me to go and do deliver something else. But no, thank you, I've, I've done it. So when I went to the, um, uh, the Grove, 
I could see it was, this is a niche where I could work. Mm. They wanted a team builder. They wanted somebody to bring this together. So that's 90, 90 chefs and they were about 45 down and they wow. were operating on uh, various um, uh, various agencies. And, you know, mm. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the cost for uh, manpower was not good and food costs were not good and the team was not, n- not good. Uh, lots of reasons how this had gone. There'd been a change of management, change of this, that, and the other. Uh, so there was an opportunity. It looked after me very well. I had never run a hotel as such, so lots of areas of hotels, so it's a bit of a steep learning curve. Uh, but very much what they wanted is they wanted someone to uh, bring it together. It was about the cohesion mm-hmm. uh, and building them, them bricks. So I pretty much got myself involved. We started our own apprenticeship and um, it wasn't long before we were bringing in, and I I still believe this today, you know what I mean? We brought in commies and uh, uh, apprentices and we made our own CDPs. And believe it or not, the CDPs were brilliant because they did exactly what we needed and now we needed to do it. Mm -hmm. And actually, wherever they go, when they got to CDP, they need to go on and go somewhere else. Uh, they, their world, they need to go and find the rest of the world um, because they will all make uh, master chefs, head chefs, wherever they're going to go. But it was very nice that we was at the end, we nurtured them and got them going. Once we got that going, um, goodness bred goodness. Mm. And um, every time at the local colleges, I would go out to the colleges and go and recruit a handful each time. I had the opportunity to do some of their synoptic testing. So as I was going around doing their testing, I found any good ones, here's my card. Uh, If you're looking for a job, I'm happy to take you on. And of course that made life a little bit easier. And uh, the head chefs that I had with the, uh, that were there were brilliant. Um, They could all take their own kitchens and they could breed their own people. They just needed the bodies to come in. We find it hard to find the people. Uh, but once we got it up and running, you know, I mean, we were running at full capacity for a long time and we moved the business quite forward. Um, and that's where, again, my nanny McPhee came in after five and a half years. Um, oh, Harry, you know, I mean, we like to say, I know, but you don't need me anymore. This is running brilliantly. And your next generation, you need to bring in with the next generation. Mm-hmm. A couple of key people went and the, um, you know, I mean, the, the balance changes. Um, people ask me, how how do I like change? I've only ever lived in change. You know, if you stand still, you go backwards. Mm. So you need to be embracing and you need to be able to know just when to step off to allow the next generation. So my mantra is about training the next generation. They can have all my recipes. They can have anything I've got. I'm quite happy to teach them. I'll spend as much time with them as they want. Hence why I do a lot of um, uh, competition work now, uh, judging on the panels and what have you. I'm happy to talk to them and tell them the reason you didn't get gold is because a lot more uh, and try and explain to them because the idea of competitions, it gives them the confidence. And I had my own team from the Grove entering the competitions and we won endless medals. It was it was a real dream of a job. Amazing. How long did it take from turning up when it was 45 chefs short and, and chaos to kind of go in, you know what, there we go. That's now humming, I can enjoy it. Uh, to be honest, I bet it would have been two years. Yeah. Good. And how different was it? Because I'm guessing the Olympics was just a one-off kind of, you know, weird thing, but you'd fundamentally done 34 years in the military and then that's your first sort of proper private experience. Was yeah. it was it very different or actually was the transition quite easy? 
Um, quite easy. My wife said to me, oh, God, it'll be a bloody nightmare when he goes out into Civvy Street because they won't know how to manage. Um, but you know what? That kitchen, it's the kitchen ethos that's moved with me. I'm still inside the kitchen, actually. I haven't really gone out. I'm still in my safe, safe zone mm. um, because uh, I'm talking about things and I'm working with things, you know what I mean? Frying an egg in the military, whether it's on the Olympics or at the Grove or here, believe it or not, we do it all the same. So it's that sort of ethos and the idea it's, um, so you come here, you know what I mean? I know nothing about football. Well, actually, the, the FA are delighted I know nothing about football because yeah. they haven't employed me here to be the centre forward. So uh, let me crack on doing not, the cooking yet, and he'll, uh, he'll crack on <laughs> kicking the ball. Yeah. Um, they asked me, I had to name uh, on something, I had to name three footballers and um, I struggled to name three footballers. <laughs> That's how bad I am. Yeah, but you could probably name a hundred different dishes with a potato. <laughs> correct, correct. So, um, so now, you know, kind of looking uh, at what you do, next and i don't mean change of job wise but i mean you, you know you i guess that mentoring that development of the next generation that kind of passing down the knowledge i think you know you work with some uh, school groups was it competitions in schools yeah, is that absolutely. is that now what motivates you and gets you excited apart from the day-to-day -day kind of delivery of the job is it really you know that that mentorship and knowledge sharing yes is the answer um i love working with the next generation there's nothing better than seeing one of the young, a couple of the youngsters. So I'm part of the Worshipful Company of Cooks, who sponsor lots of schools, um, Craft Guild of Chefs, again. And, and then again with the competitions, I get the opportunity to see lots of the youngsters and I get involved in, uh, say, the judging. And um, to see that next generation just coming together and if they're hungry for it, we, there's a handful that we've had just recently. And they're so excited about cooking. And I can remember, I think it's what I used to be like, um, you know what I mean, when they're just mixing this round and uh, doing something, right, you know what I mean, taste your tomato soup, you've made it. You, they, didn't, they only ever thought it came out of a can. They're amazed that they could make it themselves. And, of course, when you start putting together flour and some butter together to make your roux and you're telling them how to, and then you get some carrots and some bacon bits uh, for, the, um, um, for the tomato soup, they're going... Tomato soup. They can't see where this tomato soup's coming from. And when it all comes together and they taste it, they can't believe it, the, the, their eyes light up. Now that's the people who, um, who are gonna be passionate in the next generation. And I think that, um, um, so often people say, well, what's the chefs like now? Are they better or any worse than when you started? Well, the real answer to that is they're no better, no worse, but they are different. And um, one of the big bits that I found when I was re uh, working at the Grove, uh, I went out to the colleges. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you just a very quick story that went horribly wrong. I'd gone to a college over in Essex um, and there's 500 kids in the audience and um, there's about four or five people who are, in, uh, who are coming in to give a careers brief. And I was number two or three and um, I uh, said, right, how many people are interested in being a chef? Um, so I got about five hands up and I could see this was going to be a hard gig. So rather than standing right at the back of the stage, I come down, I chatting to him, uh, told him all about, given my presentation, told him a little bit about what it was. I think pretty much part of it is, you know, I mean, this is a, um, this is a bit more than a job. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. Uh, at the end of it, I said, right. Okay. So how many people now are interested in being a chef? Only one put the random. <laughs> I realized why I'm not in recruiting. Yeah. You told him the truth. That was the point. <laughs> but 
What I did learn, and again, this is a bit like me learning how to work an iPhone or something. I, I, I sat down and the last guy came on, he was on, I think it was hairdressing or something like that. And I sat down, I was actually a little bit disappointed with myself. So I had the opportunity at the end to ask any questions. They were, the others didn't need it. So I'd gone up, I said, well, I, I, I've got some questions for you. What I want to know, what do I have to do to get you into catering? If I want you in my world, what is it I need to do? What is it that's scaring you away? And the um, so the first one says, well, I don't like working weekends. So I was about to launch um, a verbal address at them. And I thought, no, I, I, I'm going to take this. I, I, so I wrote it down, working weekends. What don't you like about work and why? Well, I, I've got my own life to do and I've got this and I don't really like working weekends. I don't like working late nights because I need to be out with my mates. Going, what? Bite your teeth, just keep writing up. Okay, anything else? Yeah, you're not allowed to use your phones in the kitchens. No, I, you don't use your phones in the kitchen, but we want to use a phone. Okay, fine, well, let me write it down. Uh, the standard address, you know, I mean, the cook's whites aren't very flattering. Well, it's not a fashion parade, but I, I, I get it. And um, everybody screams and shouts in the kitchen. So I, I took this away and I reflected over the weekend, uh, chatting to my wife and my, uh, uh, two of my daughters who were in recruiting as well. Uh, and on the Monday or Tuesday, I went to the HR at the Grove and uh, I said, I learned something last week and I think we need to change. If I'm going to change um, what, how we get people in, we need to change. And we did, and that's what made the difference. So the first thing we did is there was an opportunity to put Wi-Fi in all the kitchens, and that was all to do with the fridges, and we have it here um, at the monitoring all the fridges. So it's a, we have a gentleman's agreement. You can have your phones. You can use your phones. Um, because I realised people, uh, you know, on phones you could find recipes. Um, you can phone, you know, your parents and uh, your wife. You know, it's amazing what the iPhone does nowadays. And it wasn't me just thinking they're talking to the girlfriend all the time. Uh, they're using it, they're taking pictures, there's a Snap, instant Snapchat or whatever it's called, all these sort of things of... Um, I think uh, Snapchat is a very good uh, idea for a social channel, but carry on, Snapchat, sorry. Snapchat, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, um, so I realised how important that was. So I, as I said, I, I allow them to use it. And believe it or not, I, I, I did say, if I caught you misusing it, the whole of the kitchen will lose it. Well, to be honest, everybody uses it properly. And out of there, they're finding recipes, they're finding new ideas, they're coming up with it. They've got their notes on there. It's amazing. It's brilliant. Working weekends and um, late nights, this was a bit more of a challenge. But I did go out to a couple of agencies and work around with. And interesting enough, I found people who want to just work weekends. They were slightly the elder brethren um, who had got families and what have you, who uh, perhaps part-time had been a chef perhaps had children and wanted to get back a little bit of part-time and what have you. Uh, and I found that these were uh, brilliant workforce. They could work on their own. And um, doing the sandwiches, the afternoon teas and all this sort of thing, fantastic. Uh, working late at night, again, it was a matter of uh, this working, coming in at seven and still working till 11 o'clock at night. I forgot there was halfway in the day. So we did a sort of a split shift. I found people who were good at getting up in the morning and I found people who don't like getting up in the morning who are better at night. So there was a, uh, just by moving a couple of people round, you started to accommodate what they wanted. Uh, 
Um, and I remember having somebody who only ever wants to do earlies. And I thought, if that's all you want to do, I have a position for you doing earlies. And actually, it was one of the best things I ever did because having somebody who could do earlies and be reliable, uh, rather than you get a phone call saying there's no one turned up for breakfast, uh, brilliant. So there was a handful of them people emerged. As for Chess White, I um, got a better contractor to uh, wash and iron and to uh, launder the Cook's Whites to make them look a bit better. We got them an apron with the grove on it. Um, and I allowed them, if they wanted to wear black trousers, they could wear black trousers. If I was supplying them, then they'd wear the checks, but no clown trousers, nothing like that. Uh, at the end of the day, I need them smart. I, I, they all had caps and what have you, and they all look it's a bit of a run on military grounds. Often people say this is not the army. No, it's not, it's the Grove, but I run it like the army. So get over it. Um, so I think all of those little things changed the way I did business. So my last three years at the Grove was made a lot easier because mm. I had learned to just give. Now, that's exactly why I don't have a problem or too much of a problem here because I can accommodate people and where and what they are. You know, we've got somebody who works till four o'clock. Well, if the event's at eight o'clock at night, I need somebody in three hours before, not a problem. Before, we wouldn't look at them people. Mm. So again, just by being a bit more flexible. Shouting, I don't do any shouting. The days of shouting was in the military. I don't need to shout. You either want to come to work, you want to get paid, um, or you don't. If you don't, then the door swings both ways. So feel free, uh, you know where you're going. I only want you here if you want to be here. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's fascinating because that's been the biggest shift, I think, culturally in the last five years in the kitchen, isn't it? Is that probably Ramsey-esque more than military because you didn't have a film crew following you around probably in your yeah, kitchens. Yeah. But, you know, he, uh, much as he's, you know, a phenomenal chef and he demonstrates you you do need that discipline in the kitchen, probably put a lot of people off for a number yeah, of years. Well, I think the people, work, the people who worked with him actually stayed for years and I'm sure yeah. he wasn't as bad. But the, t not, the yeah. TV persona of, uh, of, yeah, the kind of shouty chef put a lot of people off. And, and, and it's not unreasonable really, is it? much as we may bemoan uh yeah the demands i guess of the younger generation actually you know they're probably teaching us a thing or two isn't it having some time to spend with your friends and spend with your family and having a bit of quality of life is clearly the right way as a lot of kitchens now going down to four day weeks admittedly long days but you know four on three off so uh yeah it's good to hear um that it's happening at, at, at all levels uh i guess um any advice specific advice then to anybody just you know draw into a close but there is a challenge, I think, certainly in our part of the world, but I, I speak to a lot of people and in general, probably, you know, you alluded to it then, there is a, a challenge around motivating people to come into the kitchens. Um, but it's still a, you know, it's a fascinating career full of opportunity. It means, you know, you can travel anywhere in the world. So there's lots of plus sides. But is there anything you say to young people, uh, apart from you can now have your phone, would you still advise, I don't know, even your kids, would you say that a, a career as a chef and in the kitchen is still a good idea? Um, yes, in as much as uh, it's it's still hard work, uh, and if you're prepared um, to, if you want to work hard, you know, I mean, the rewards uh, are brilliant. Uh, as I mentioned at the, uh, early on, you know, I mean, the promotion is uh, a lot, a lot um, easily structured. You can see where your next step is. You know what you need to do, um, and there's so many disciplines in uh, being a chef out there. So um, uh, whether it, it, it's in school catering, fine dining restaurants, in the stadia, whether it's casual and whether it's in the UK or around the world, you know, I mean, um, uh, you are going to be in high demand 
for a long time. People are going to need to eat for a long, long, long time. And if you can be um, be involved in that, and again, you know, I mean, there's nothing better than being at the topic of food everybody can talk about. Everybody's got an opinion about food. Uh, but... Um, it's brilliant that you part and parcel of everybody's life. You know what I mean? And for me here at Wembley, bringing it to a close, at Wembley, everybody who comes in here, they walk through the door to look at the football. But if I engage, they see me wandering around, they pass the time of day, we have a chat. Um, uh, and nothing about football, it's all about the food. And again, just bringing it all together is that's what the game's all about. I love it. It's exciting. Uh, I'm passionate about it and getting the next generation involved, I think, uh, and I'm happy to talk to anybody about it and I'm happy at, uh, at the stadium here to show anybody what we do. We're open and transparent here. It's hard work uh, and I'm always looking for volunteers. I'm always looking for people to come and work at Webley. Mm. Perfect. Well, uh, thank you for, for sparing the time to chat. But I think more importantly than that, thank you for feeding the British military for 34 years in various guises, you know, on behalf of the British public. Uh, that's an awesome thing to have done with your life. Uh, but also, you know, really excited that you didn't just disappear off and retire. And now that you're keeping uh, Wembley Stadium, which is another iconic part of Britain, I guess, isn't it? So I, I will put a link to the website for the various sort of, you know, memberships and access to the restaurants here. But um, thanks, Harry. It's been fascinating chatting to you. I appreciate you sparing the time. Great, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. And remember that on the website humansofhospitality.co.uk, every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned. And we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics so you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice that would be hugely appreciated thank you so much and uh, we'll be out with another episode next monday